0: This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. The reading this morning comes from Jeremiah chapter 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely, and this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. This morning, this time of year, is called Advent uh, in the church calendar. And Advent, as I said, is an older word that means a coming or an arrival. And this is our third uh, sermon in the Advent series. And in this uh, series, we're essentially asking the Bible, why did Jesus have to come? Why did he come? Why did Jesus have to arrive? Why did he arrive? Why did Jesus have to Advent, if you will? And So in light of this being our third sermon, I think it's appropriate for me to offer you a quick review, largely because many of us were traveling over the last two uh, Sundays. Uh, in, our, in our first Advent sermon, Sin, our associate pastor, uh, taught us from Genesis uh, 1 through3 that the first reason Jesus had to come as a human was to feel, fulfill God's promise of victory. Uh, if you're here the Sunday before Thanksgiving, you'll recall that in Genesis uh, 1 through three, Genesis three, particularly, God, God promises Satan. He promises his ultimate enemy that one day a descendant of Adam would crush Satan's head, uh, would put Satan to death. Uh, Satan, as you remember, tempted Eve to sin, and through Eve's sin, Satan's evil and Satan's decay and Satan's death were knit into the fabric of God's good and perfect creation. And then in our second Advent sermon last week, Eric Stites, our congregation planter for New City Holden Heights, uh, taught us uh, from Genesis 22 that the second reason for why Jesus had to Advent is this, is that God promised to provide a sacrifice. Uh, God had, pro- had promised to provide a, a human, uh, a perfect sacrifice in the future uh, so that humans could be forgiven and reconciled with God and so that humans could take part in God's victory over Satan. Think about it. Although Satan tempted, Adam and Eve sinned. And God could have crushed Satan without the advent of Jesus, but God couldn't crush Satan uh, and evil uh, without Jesus coming and dying in our place and including us in that victory. So why Advent? Well, the promise of victory, the provision of a sacrifice. But this morning, we want to continue to answer that question. Why did Jesus' advent? And we want to see this. Jesus had to come to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies, Regarding righteousness. You see, in, in Jesus' advent, he not only defeats Satan and forgives sinners, but he also reestablishes righteousness. If you think about Genesis 1 through 3, the Bible teaches us that Jesus is God's response to the fall. That God, in response to the fall, through Jesus, crushes his enemy, forgives his people, and reestablishes for them all, for, for them, I, I guess I would say it this way reestablishes for them all that they lost in the garden both what was actually there and what was potentially there. If you were here in October and November as we studied Galatians 1 and 2, you already know that Jesus' reestablishment of righteousness includes you as an individual. Jesus as Savior gives you his record of righteousness, and then Jesus by his Holy Spirit grows you in righteousness. But I want us to learn this morning or be reminded this morning that his establishment of righteousness and fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies, it includes us as individuals, but it goes far beyond us as individuals and even far beyond us as a community. Our our outline this morning flows from the prophecy in Jeremiah 33. And quite simply, I'm going to use the three phrases in that text uh, that include the word righteousness. So first, we're going to talk about righteousness in the land. Second, we're going to talk about the righteous branch. And third, the Lord is our righteousness. All right. So first, righteousness in the land. If you would get your worship folder out in the insert is Jeremiah 33. And, and in the, the, on the second page of the worship folder itself is Isaiah 11. I will be referring to both of those quite frequently. Look at verse 15 in chapter 33 of Jeremiah. God declares this through the prophet. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch, capital B, to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Uh, execute is actually a great translation uh, of this Hebrew word because this word can mean to do personally or to produce in others, and it depends on the context. And in this verse, uh, Jeremiah is saying that the righteous branch will both himself do righteousness and will also produce righteousness. So the first, uh, the, the first point today is, is, in summary, this pay very, very close attention. I don't think you know where we're going. The prophecy is not simply righteousness on the land, but righteousness in the land. God doesn't say in this passage that Jesus will only establish righteousness on the land or among the people who live in the land, although that's true. God promises that the branch, the Messiah, Jesus will establish righteousness in the land. The Hebrew word for land is earth. And God is prophesying through Jeremiah that the the, the, the Messiah will reestablish righteousness in every sphere of the earth. It includes us as individuals and our relationship with God, but it's more than just us as individuals. It's more than just us as a community. So to start, if the Messiah will do and produce righteousness, what does righteousness mean? In, In a word, righteousness means rightness. It means to be right as opposed to being wrong. But what is right in the Bible? My favorite Old Testament professor in seminary gave us this definition for righteousness in the Old Testament and therefore in the Bible. Righteousness is living for the good of the community. Particularly where one disadvantages themselves for the advantage of others. Wickedness in the Bible is selfishness, self-centeredness, self-referential living. Wickedness is one disadvantages others for their own advantage, or when one simply doesn't advantage others. Righteousness is the absence, I guess I would say it this way, righteous is not the absence of wickedness in the Bible. Righteous is the presence of rightness. The Bible would see it just as heinous to not stop injustice as to do injustice, So why did Jesus advent? Well, in part, to fulfill the prophecies regarding righteousness. Uh, First, to be the king that is righteous. Look in verse 15. Jesus came to do righteousness in the land. He came to be that king who rules and reigns for the people and not for himself. Second, uh, Jesus came to fulfill the prophecy of righteousness in this way, to create an interdependent people who live righteously, that, that live for each other. The third Jesus came and listened closely to reestablish rightness righteousness or rightness in the world in creation in the natural realm. Jesus came to do and produce all that was lost in the garden of Eden. There are 3 prophets who refer to Jesus as a branch. Isaiah, Jeremiah and Zechariah. In all of these prophecies, there's the emphasis of the reestablishment of righteousness. In all of these prophecies, there's a righteous king, righteous individuals, a righteous community living interdependently, and there's a righteous land. Isaiah 11, what I read for you is the call to worship, is the most famous of the three, but let me tell you about Zechariah. Zechariah 3 says that when the branch comes, the Lord will remove, listen to this, iniquity from the land. And it means more than removing iniquity from the people who live on the land. We know that because verse 10 says this In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and his fig tree. So, first, a righteous community, everyone will be a landowner. There will be no slavery, there will be no poverty, there will be no oppression. His vine, his fig tree. Second, there will be righteous people. Everyone will constantly be inviting everyone else over to enjoy what they have. Everyone serves everyone else. But finally, written to the people in an arid culture, impoverished by oppression, everyone will have a vine for shade and a fig tree for delicious food. In Zechariah, when the branch comes, there's righteousness on the earth. There's righteousness among the people of the earth. And there's righteousness or rightness in the earth. But not only Jeremiah and Zechariah, but also Isaiah. We're going to look at Isaiah 11, 1 through 9. That's why it's in your worship folder. Uh, But before we go there, look at verse 14 of Jeremiah 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. Commentators will tell you, commentators much smarter than me and much more learned than me will tell you that verse 14 is referring, at least in part and probably in large part, to the promise God made a hundred years before through Isaiah and Isaiah 11. Jeremiah is saying, when I say righteousness in the land, I want you to think of all you know from Isaiah 11. Turn to verse 1 of Isaiah 11. Again, the text is on the second page of your worship folder. There shall come forth a shoot. From the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And then, quickly, verses two and three tell you about a divine king with the attributes needed to serve and to lead well. Verse four tells us that this king will create a righteous community, which includes the need to eradicate from the earth any wickedness, any selfishness, any self centeredness, any self referential people. And then, look at verse five righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness, the belt of his loins. And then look at what happens in the land in the advent of the righteous and faithful king. Look at what happens in the land when rightness shows up in the land, in nature. First, no predator advantaging himself at the ultimate expense of his prey. Verse six the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the lion, and the fattened calf together. The calf is a newborn. If a lion's really hungry, they just go and get the newborn. The fattened calf is a yearling that can run. And if the lion's up for some fun, he chases the fattened calf. Either way, Isaiah says, that won't happen in the Messianic age. Look at verse 7. Present carnivores will be changed in their, in their nature into herbivores. In the Messianic in the age, excuse me, verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze. You know that their nature has been changed because their young shall lie down together. This is a Hebraic way of letting you know that something has happened at their very nature, because mom and child both do it. Imagine the scene in the land. Cows and bears will get their fill of grass and nap together. Further in verse 7, the ideas of carnivores becoming herbivores in the righteous land continues, but the emphasis becomes the domestication of animals. The lion shall eat straw. Like the ox. In Hebrew, grass is what animals graze on the field. Straw is what they eat when providing, provided for by the hand of man. So lions, the king of the jungle in our world, according to Isaiah, will be under the dominion of man in the fullness of the messianic age. This is said directly in verse 6, but I skipped it. Speaking of the wolf and the lamb and the goat and the lion, a little child shall lead them have power over them. When the Messiah's righteousness is reestablished in the land, there is no survival of the fittest. There is no attack of predator on prey. There's no danger in a child leading the wolf, the lion, and the bear. There's only mutual flourishing among the animals, and there's only humans in dominion, ruling and reigning in the name of Jesus. Again, if you're familiar with Genesis 1 through 3, creation regained in the Messiah. Next, what's been hinted at is directly addressed. Humans need not fear any animal. Look at verse 8. The nursing child, think crawler at the oldest, shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the wean child, think toddler, shall put his hand on the adders or the vipers' den. No lie, last week, Prior to studying this passage, prior to even knowing what my passage was, I had a dream wherein my daughter Gentry was pestering a cobra. She would pester it, run from it, and laugh. And in the dream, Liam, my four year old son, unwittingly walks up into the scene and is struck twice by the cobra and dies. I wake up in the wee hours of the morning, earlier than what is the wee hours of the morning for me ordinarily, and I could not go back to sleep. I could not get my blood pressure to go down. I could not get my heart rate to go down. I was so affected by the dream. The parents' worst nightmare in our world is impossible when the righteous branch reestablishes righteousness in the land. In the fullness of the messianic age, children will play fetch with lions. Children will tell bears sit, lay down, roll over. Adults will never worry about the safety of children. Animals at least will be herbivores. That'll be an interesting con- conversation. We'll be be vegetarians in the new heavens and the new earth. Too smart for me. But animals at least will be Think about it. All living creatures will exist for the good of others. When the plant's produce is consumed, the plant is not destroyed but the plant actually grows. It actually brings health to the plant when the fruit or the produce is removed from the tree. That cannot be said of a yearling lamb. That can only be said of a plant. And so, what does the Bible say when asked, why did Jesus have to advent? Well, first, the promise of victory. His enemy won a battle, but not the war. Second, the provision of a sacrifice. To include the people he loves in that victory, he had to die on their behalf. And third, The prophecies of righteousness or rightness in the land. Not just the righteousness of the king or the people forgiven, but the righteousness of the fallen and cursed land. And so that's the first point. The Messiah will do and produce righteousness in the land. But now, the second point, the righteous branch. Here's the question. That you've either compartmentalized if you're a believer or begin to wonder yourself if you're just trying to figure this out. Was and is Jesus the branch? Was and is Jesus the Messiah? And here's why we're asking that question. I think about my life and my world, and I have to ask the question, has there been this reestablishment of righteousness? I mean, particularly for today, as we emphasize righteousness in the land, the question is, is Isaiah 11, 6 through 9, true of your world? no. We live in a world where predators still stalk and kill their prey, and I'm talking about animals. We live in a world where animals are dangerous to unsuspecting children and they attack humans. We live in a natural realm, not to mention humanity, but in the animal realm, it is red, it is bloody and tooth and claw. We live in a world where tsunamis and hurricanes destroy and kill we live in a world where many, many, many live in incredibly harsh climates and they don't easily and regularly enjoy shade and food. So is Jesus the branch? Was Jesus' advent 2,000 years ago the fulfillment of what Jeremiah, Zechariah, and Isaiah foretold? Well, yes and no. Let's think about it biblically. To start... The New Testament clearly claims that Jesus is the Messiah. The New Testament clearly claims that he's the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. For example, Hebrews 8 clearly teaches that this larger section about the new covenant in Jeremiah is fulfilled in Jesus. Isaiah is over and over said to be fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus himself many times claimed to be the Messiah. As a side, and I'm not saying this is a proof uh, that he's the branch, but I think it's incredibly ironic. Jesus was from Nazareth. You know what Nazareth means in the Hebrew? Town of the branch. Might be a little obvious. But more than that, think about Jesus' life. See, the question is, is, did he do what the righteous branch would do? You cannot deny that the four gospels tells the story of a righteous branch. So not only did he claim to be the Messiah, but he did justice and righteousness in the land. Every vignette in the Gospels is the story of a king living with righteousness, always doing good, always promoting others, in word and deed, especially for the meek and the poor, always serving, even when it cost him dearly. But not only did, did Jesus do justice and righteousness in the land, he actually produced justice and righteousness in other people. Think about Zacchaeus. Because of the advent of the righteous branch, Zacchaeus went from worshiping money and power to worshiping God. He went from being selfishly unjust and oppressive to selflessly and radically righteous. The community in which he lived went from lament to celebration, all because the branch advented, if you will. But further and most relevant for for our message today, Jesus' miracles were proof that he was the branch. Did you know that this is the actual explanation that Jesus gave for his miracles when he spoke of them? John the Baptist was in prison and his life is in the balance and he sends his disciples to Jesus and he asks, are you the one, are you the Messiah or should we expect another? You see, the physical circumstances in John's life drove him to a little bit of doubt. He's like, are you the one or not? And Jesus says, Well, you know what he says, right? The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. You see, everywhere the righteous branch went, the messianic age came into being. The righteous king was there doing justice and righteousness. He, through grace and the gospel, was producing justice and righteousness in people. He, through his power, was judging and expelling and casting out wickedness. But he also, in the natural realm, was reversing the curse with his miracles. Think about his miracles. This is the greatest argument for why they actually happened. They were never raw displays of power with no apparent purpose. They are always powerful, redemptive, and purposeful displays of the Messianic age. Abundant wine or food for thousands. The calming of a stormy and deadly sea. Broken bodies healed. Etc., etc. John says, Are you the one? I'm starting to doubt. And Jesus says, Yes, I'm the one. Here's the proof righteousness in the land. So let's return to our question. If he was clearly the branch in the Bible, why is my life and why is my world the way it is? Why do my friends and my family and my neighbors have cancer? Why, Why do those. Why did those uh, two lions attack that lioness in the Dallas Zoo in front of children last week? Why did those two big dogs attack my kid's little puppy and kill my kid's little puppy a few years ago? Why is nature, as Tennyson says, red or bloody in tooth and claw? Did we somehow mess this thing up again? And the only answer I know to give to the question is this. It pleased God and it pleases God to have three Advents and not just one. In New City, we don't talk about Advent, we talk about Advents. You see, John the Baptist's expectation was this, that when the Messiah comes, he will instantaneously establish his kingdom in fullness right away. And to be fair, uh, you and I would have had our expectations in the exact same place. If all we had was the Old Testament, we would have thought Jesus is not doing his job. The prophecies of the Old Testament do feel rather instantaneous. And so John the Baptist is saying, if you're the one, get me out of these painful physical circumstances. And Jesus says, I'm the branch. I'm the one. Look at my effect on the natural realm. But you're gonna die in prison. Jesus doesn't just say the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed. That's the beginning of an Isaiah prophecy. He keeps going. And instead of quoting Isaiah, where Isaiah says prisoners are set free, this is what he says. John... The dead are raised. And he's telling John the Baptist, my messianic kingdom is here, but it is not fully here. And when my kingdom comes in fullness, you'll be raised from the dead. It pleased God and it pleases God to have three advents and not just one. Jesus clearly taught that in his first advent, as a human and incarnation, he taught that he inaugurated his kingdom. He began his kingdom. Jesus also taught that he would then ascend to heaven and advance his kingdom through the sending and the, if you will, adventing of his spirit, the continual coming of the Holy Spirit. That's been happening for 2,000 years now as the kingdom has advanced through the church. And finally, at a date that no one knows but the Father, Jesus is gonna physically return and he is gonna bring his kingdom in fullness. And Romans 8 says the natural realm, the physical realm, it will not experience this redemption or this righteousness, this rightness until Jesus returns. And so John the Baptist was right to think Isaiah eleven six six through nine is gonna happen when Jesus gets here. But Jesus says, that's not gonna happen until I get back. Do you remember what Jesus said about his kingdom? It's like yeast and dough. Matthew 13, Luke 13. Listen to Luke. It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. In other words, our world, if you will, has been infected with and, if you will, has been injected with the messianic kingdom and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That kingdom is spreading But you need to know it's not spreading in the natural realm. One day, Jesus will return to consummate his kingdom. And you're going to read in city Bible reading and revelation that he's going to bring with him the new heaven and the new earth. And in all the ways imaginable, righteousness will dwell in the land. And so this is the second point. The righteous Branch. Emphasis on branch. Most simply, I wanted to, to, to say specifically and explicitly to you that Jesus is the righteous branch, even though not all of it has come to be but I want you to actually think about the metaphor used by Jeremiah. Think about the metaphor used by Isaiah. Again, I don't fault John the Baptist. I don't fault Jesus' disciples for missing it. But if you think about what is said in the passage, if you think about it from where we sit on this side of the first advent, on this side of what Jesus taught, you can begin to see that the Messianic age will not be instantaneous. Look at the words used for Jesus in Isaiah 11.1. It's a shoot. could be a very small twig. A branch, which is really a sprout or a young sapling. Think about the oak tree right when it breaks through the ground. In Jesus is something incredibly powerful with lots of potential, but at the time it comes, small. In chapter six, Isaiah prophesies that Israel, like a massive oak tree, because of their sin would be would be cut down and left as a dead stump. Six hundred years the stump lay without any life being apparent in it. But Isaiah in chapter eleven says that from the stump and from the roots a small twig or a small sprout will arise. In other, in other words, at the end of verse ten, if you look at Isaiah eleven ten, Isaiah says the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord like the waters cover the sea that no one and nothing will hurt nor destroy in all the earth. But Isaiah says this starts with a small twig, a small sprout, a small sapling sort of like a pinch of yeast in a massive batch of dough. Jesus also said of his kingdom that it would be like a small seed that eventually becomes a tree. He said that at the exact same time as leaven in dough. and dough. So in a minute, we'll conclude relatively quickly for us with our third point. But before we do, uh, let me give you three practical applications I think, first of all, I think there's incredible value with understanding a biblical framework for our world and lives. But beyond that, let's press into that framework and let's think of three practical ways in which we should live today. You ready? First, especially with physical things, don't name it and claim it. Maybe I'm sensitive to this with some really sick friends and family. Of course we ask for physical healing and we we rejoice in it when God gives it. But our theology tells us that we will all physically die unless we're here when Jesus returns. Our physical death does not violate good theology. Naming and claiming violates physical, or excuse me, let me say it again. Our physical death does not violate good theology. Naming and claiming physical things does. Listen to this. It is not the quintessential sign of biblical faith if God heals you. The quintessential sign of faith is trusting in God at the moment you die. Jesus tells John the Baptist, you're going to die. But there's a third advent. So have faith. You know what he says after that? Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Second, grow proactive in the discipline of hope. In the Bible, hope is not an uncertain thing wherein we sure do hope X, Y, or Z happens. In the Bible, hope is a certain future, uh, a certain reality in the future. And the Bible is saying that Jesus is advancing, he will advance, and he will return to consummate his kingdom. And I think, and I have found in my own life that when I grow in the discipline of hope, my contentment in the here and now goes up and my idolatry in the here and now goes down. Think about it like this. We're not supposed to be ultimately satisfied in this life. The fact that we have deep, unmet longings proves that there's a third advent that has to happen. If we can get more comfortable with our deep longings and if we can learn to hope into the certain future, we might become more content with what we actually have now and we might find ourselves less motivated to seek ultimate life and ultimate satisfaction in these created things. Which, by the way, is the biblical definition of idolatry. So first, in regards to physical things, don't name it and claim it. Certainly ask for it, work towards it. But don't name it and claim it. Second, grow proactive in the discipline of hope. And third, pray Maranatha. Pray the Lord's Prayer. At the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, Our Lord, come. Advent. Advent. Maranatha in the original language is Lord Jesus, come. How did Jesus teach us how to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is that speaking both to the second advent and the third advent? Sure. But I guarantee you we pray for the the advent of the spirit more than we pray for the advent of Jesus. Jesus when we truly understand how hard this life is for millions of Christians, and when we truly understand how marvelous it will be in the new heavens and the new earth, that place where Christ's righteous blessing flows as far as the curse is found, when we get ourselves to that place of how hard it is for millions of Christians now and how good it is there, we will be begging Jesus, come back. Advent. Maranatha. Finally, for today... The Lord is our righteousness. Maybe I lost you a while ago. Maybe your heart resonates with the description of a righteous king who does justice and righteousness. Maybe your heart resonates with the thought of an interdependent community of equity and service. Maybe your heart resonates with the description of the new heavens and the new earth, but maybe I lost you because the idea of the second half of Isaiah 11.4 is too much for us. Look at 11.4. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Maybe I lost you because you, like me, are wicked. Once you see that wickedness biblically is any self-centeredness, we're all guilty. None of us are righteous. But I have incredible news. Look with me at verse 16 of Jeremiah 33. Pay particularly close attention to the name of the land, the name of the world established by the righteous branch, established by Jesus. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it, not the branch, but the land, this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Our righteousness comes from the Lord. Our justification and our status is a gracious gift from him. Everyone who lives there will constantly say, I live in the land of our Lord is our righteousness. On the cross, Jesus Christ was crucified between two criminals. One of them recognized his guilt, confessed that he deserved to die. In Christ, he saw grace and hope. And he says to Jesus, incredible theology, When you enter into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus responded, today you will be with me in paradise. How can this wicked man, guilty of a capital offense, be included in the establishment of righteousness in the land? Don't miss the irony. The righteous branch climbed up on a tree and was cut down. He died for the sins of the criminal on that cross. He died for the sins of those who have faith in him. The righteous branch in his death and in his resurrection gives his righteousness to that very same criminal. And upon his death that day, the criminal entered into paradise, which is called by the name, the Lord is our Righteousness. If your faith is in the righteous branch today, you've been declared righteous by God in his gospel. Your status is already that of righteous. Also, if you believe in this one who is to come, who who, who has come, who will come, if you believe in him, you're being made increasingly righteous by the advent and the ministry of his spirit who dwells within. Further, further, You're being used by that very same spirit, the spirit of the righteous branch to advance justice and righteousness in the land. One day you'll live forever in the new heavens and the new earth and the name by which it will be called is the Lord is our righteousness. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We have yet again truncated your gospel to something we could understand To something we could put our minds around. And the good news of who you are, what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do has blown our minds yet again. Thank you that your execution of this gospel is not based on our faith in hearing it, our ability to remember it, but your faithfulness is based on your promise and your character, and you are doing these things. We thank you, Jesus, that you will one day put us into a land that is beyond our wildest imagination. We thank you that we are already righteous and qualified for that land because you died in our place on the cross. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you live within and that you are making us more righteous day by day. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you come into our lives, into our hearts, into our minds, into our relationships, into our city? And Would you bring more justice and righteousness? Jesus, would you come back? This life is hard. Would you please come and bring your kingdom in its fullness? As soon as all those you died for have repented and believed, we beg you, come. We know now that you're still saving your own. We pray that you would do that speedily. In the name of Jesus, we pray.